Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Life is full of awesome what ifs and some not so much, like unexpected medical costs. That's why United Healthcare provides Health Protector Guard fixed indemnity insurance plans to supplement your primary plan and help manage out of pocket costs. Learn more at uh1.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. Like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on LinkedIn.com slash people today. Welcome to the Intercooler Podcast. Welcome to episode 168 of the Intercooler Podcast with me, Dan Prosser, and my co-host, Andrew Frankel. Uh, now, this, this week we're talking about Bentley in motorsport because Andrew has spent his weekend at the Le Mans Classic racing a Bentley. Um, and it sounds like he had an extraordinary time. So we talk about that and use this as an opportunity to talk about Bentley in motorsport and the significance of motor racing to Bentley the mark. Um, and of course, we have to talk about the Bentley boys as well. But before we do that, I just want to give a shout out to our car finance partner, JBR Capital, um, because, well, they've got some news. Uh, they've won an award. They were nominated for four awards at the Credit Strategy Car Finance Awards and won Best Independent Lender. Um, JBR Capital have also been nominated for four more awards, which are going to be announced later this month. So good luck to them on those. Now, you probably know we've been working with JBR Capital for a little while now, and they've been fantastic partners to us. Um, we, we really think that they understand what it means to be a petrol head. That's why we work with them, because they get it. They are petrol heads themselves, um, so they know what it means. So go and see what JBR Capital can do for you. Um, before you buy your next car, be it a used car or a new car, it's worth just picking up the phone, giving them a call um, and seeing what they can do. Tell them we sent you. Uh, that's really important. And you never know, you might just be able to get a really good deal through them. Um, you'll find contact details in the description to this podcast. But if you just search JBR Capital, you'll find them easily enough online. So congratulations to them. Now let's get on with the podcast. Andrew, you've had a memorable weekend. You've been at the Le Mans Classic racing, by the sounds of it, a very special Bentley, a very old Bentley. Um, and, I mean, it's given us a brilliant podcast topic because we can look back at the history of Bentley in motorsport, um, the Bentley boys, Bentley at Le Mans, all that stuff. But before we get on to it, let's just talk about the weekend you've had. Can you give us the background, how it happened, what you were racing? Um, I want to hear it all. Yeah, OK, well, fine. Um I think a lot of people will know that you say it's an old Bentley. It actually, well, it's not an old Bentley. It's a brand new Bentley, um, but it just looks like an old Bentley. Okay. Um, so um, Bentley decided to make a dozen of these continuation, what they call blowers, you know, the old supercharged yeah. Bentley of, you know, Tim Burke in Le Mans fame and that sort of thing. Um, and 
when they decided to do it, they decided to do it properly. Uh, they have Birkin's old car. It's the most original of the uh, original team Bentleys to survive. And so they kind of had that as a template. And what they wanted to do was to create a car and then make um, 11 other versions of it, uh, which was in every single way identical to how that car was when it raced at Le Mans in 1930 with Tim Birkin. Um, and the lengths they went to were absolutely extraordinary, to the extent that, for instance, um, the team car that they have got, which is unbelievably original, but it has had, as all these cars do, the odd argument with this, that and the other, and I know the chassis wasn't quite straight. Um, and so it's not a recreation of that car as it is now. It's a recreation of that car as it was, as it was in 1930. Yeah. Mm. Um it is it is identical as, as so far as anyone can be determined. They've got all the drawings, they've got all the photographs, they've got all the information. There was a bloke called Nobby Clark who wrote everything down in period. So they know what the car was, and that's what they've created. Um and they've made, as I say, a dozen of these things. Um or maybe yeah, uh, one of which they kept for themselves. Um they cost one and a half million pounds each. And that was the car that um that they invited me to race at the Lamar Classic. Over the weekend, um, I'm sure lots of you will know. I'm sure you all know about the Le Mans Classic. Um, and the format is they have six what they call plateaus, which are like sort of six periods of cars. So we were in the pre-war plateau, and then there's like a 50s plateau, and 60s, and 70s, and 80s, and so on. Um, and over a period of 24 hours, um, each plateau does three races. Uh, races about 45 minutes long. Um, and I know that doesn't have up 24 hours, but A, it takes a bit of time to clean up the track before um, each race, and B, they have other races going on. So there's a Group C race, um, there's a race for like sort of modern Le Mans cars, so you'll see modern Bentleys going around mm. and Audi R8s. Um, and if you've never been, it happens every two years, next year, two years' time, so in 2025, just go. I would go to it over the main 24 hours every single day of the week. Yeah, wow. and I do it, and I do it because um, for, for two very specific reasons. Um, one is the cars, um, because you've got everything from a 19, from 1920s cars, which is what I was racing to 21st century cars. There's not an era of sports car racing, which won't be represented and won't be out there racing. You will see cars there that you will never see racing like that anywhere else in the world. That's one reason. The second reason is the people who go and the cars actually that you see in the car that they go in. It is a, it's a. It's not a race full of you know Brits on tour. You know, piss Brits mm. being rude to foreigners. Mm. Um, you know, um, which is what the main Le Mans race can what be. A cons- what, what a considerable component of it, which, yeah. and it just kind of makes you ashamed to you know to come from this country. It's full of. It's just as full of Brits, but they are passionate, enthusiastic, committed classic car and racing car lovers. It's a wonderful, wonderful crowd. Um, and everybody is brilliant. Everybody is there for the right reasons. Everybody has lots of fun. There's still parties and you know and music and beer and, and and everything else that should go with the weekend like that. But it's all done in the right way for the right reasons. And um, yeah, to have been part of it. I mean, I did do it, um, but years I did did it in 2010 and 2012, uh, and I never ever thought I would do it again because um, you know the bloke who made it possible for me racing to race those cars back then you know doesn't have those sorts of cars anymore and doesn't race at the more classic anymore so i never thought i'd go back again and then out of the blue bentley rang up and said we're going to go do this Mm. and 
what I thought was so, I mean, it, it was such a brave thing for them to do for, for a number of reasons. Firstly, manufacturers just don't race, go and race their, you know, their, their cars. There's nobody else that is racing cars that they sell um, like that. And you turn up in a paddock like that and you're bent in, you know, you're putting a target on your back. But they did it in such an understated way. Um, they spent, you know, lots of time helping other people and, nobody uh, and also you know they did it with a new car with a continuation car which gets in under the rules because it is to the same specification as it would have been in 1930 um and there was no sneering at it there was nobody came up and said what's that doing here that's not an old car um everybody just loved it and they loved it because of the way that the team in particular went about doing it we were if i'm honest with you um massively I'm not complaining here, I'm just saying how it was. We were massively disadvantaged um, in the race for two particular reasons. One is that our car was, as I said, absolutely the way it was in 1930. And, you know, you know, and I'm sure everybody knows that in the world of historic races, <laughs> things yeah. don't stand still. Yeah. They just don't. And, you know, in any, I'm not saying this particularly about Le Mans or any other heroes, but if you go to a big historic race meeting, whatever they may look like, you will find other cars there that are just as new as this Bentley. They just don't say so. Mm. Yeah. You will find cars there which are meant to have, say, a three litre engine and, and you'll discover they got a 5.3 litre engine in them and nobody says anything. Um, so you're fighting with, with, with one arm tied behind your back. Um, and then the rules then tie the other one behind your back because they say, well, this is a continuation car. Therefore, while everybody else has to do a one minute pit stop, you have to do a 90 second pit stop. Okay, so in every race, which is only a forty-five minute race, you lose thirty seconds. Yeah, mm, huge um, amount. Yeah, just parked in the pits to everybody else out there. Um, and so, um, and again, you know, I'm not complaining at all because it's in the rules. And you don't like that, don't race there. That's fine. Um, but it was, it did make the, to be there in a completely standard car um, with a pit stop that was half as long again as anybody else's did make it um, quite challenging. But um. I also, I just said to you this to you before we came on air, uh, I suddenly worked out because my spa six hours went a bit wrong last year. I didn't get in the car because it broke before my shift came. Um, I hadn't raced a car um, since before COVID. Do you think that's the longest you've gone without racing a car since you started racing a car? Oh, I've raced a car every single year since yeah. I started racing a car until COVID. Mm, wow. Yeah, and lots. Um, so... Yeah, I mean, far and away. And, and, and it gets in your head, particularly if you're not young anymore. Um, you can't just sort of rely on youthful reaction times and that sort of thing. And, 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 and it, did, it did get in my head a bit, particularly when in the first race, um, I was sharing with uh, a chap called James Morley, um, who is part of, he is a fourth generation Morley racer. You know, his family, they are Bentley Racing Royalty. And they are, you know, they are the, and his brother, Stuart, who was in a car that was entered. It was run by Bentley, but it belonged to a customer. You know, Stuart did all the development on this car. Um, anyway, James was in it, and literally, I think it was in the first corner, a fuse blew, mm. which had it been, you know, controlling almost anything else other than the fuel pumps would have probably been manageable. But if your fuel pumps don't work, you've got no mm. fuel, and that's the end. And so literally the first race, which was on Saturday afternoon at 4 o'clock, lasted a corner, and that was James parked at the side of the track. And it was like, it was like a 50p fuse um, from... I don't know, somewhere. You know, nothing to do with Bentley, and, but, it, but it just put the car out. Um, it happens. but the, it, So it then meant that my first race since COVID would be in a million and a half pound Bentley at night at Le Mans. 
Oh, that's a bit extreme, isn't it? That's asking a lot. And I'd be lying if I said that didn't get into my head a little bit. Yeah. Uh, I did actually send our brilliant team manager, Dave Argent, a little note saying, please don't expect too much of me this evening because this is the situation. And he just said, just go and enjoy yourself. Um, and then the other thing that happened was because we didn't finish the first race, we had to start at the back of the grid for the second race. So we started in a 70-something position. Mm. Um, I think it's fair to say James had the wind up at this stage and so he went out in 70 something position did his stint came in and we were 26th wow god that's motoring isn't it and what are you up against just a load of other pre-war stuff right across the board you're up against you're up against the most extraordinary stuff you're up against uh, not just other Bentleys um, you're up against uh, Grand Prix Bugattis straight Mm. 8 Alfa Romeos um darren turner and aston martin um three to eight bmws um i mean just absolutely the most blue-blooded pre-war racing cars you know if you think of a pre-war racing car it would have been in that race yeah um you know beautiful bugattis and alfa romeo's and that's and that's what you're up against um and he came in and because we had this endless bloody pit stop, you can actually have a bit of a chat because normally, as you know, um, he's out, you're in and off you go. Well, it wasn't like that. You know, 90 seconds is so like, it feels like about half an hour. Yeah. Um, and he came in and he came in, he brought the car to a halt and he, he, he hopped out. I hopped in. I was just sort of in there. He went, he went, yeah, um, sorry about that. But the car in front of me blew up, you know, as I was coming in and, as you can probably see, all its oils over this car. And I looked at the windscreen and I suddenly realised I couldn't see a bloody thing. Thank God it's not raining. Um, and I looked through the the aero screen, which is what we look out of, and it's just covered in oil. And they do their best to clear it up, but really all you can do in, in that time is just smear the oil about a bit. Mm. So I went out and... and, and, and <laughs> <laughs> the other thing is, and I should mention this earlier, is that when that fuse blew, the other thing that it controlled were the little auxiliary driving lights, which are basically mm. what you see, uh, what less you see at night. Um, and because we were worried about this fuse going again, we decided not to run with those spotlights on. So I was basically, well, I wasn't basically, I was using 1920s candle power Bentley lights. Um, so I couldn't see a thing. Even if I could have seen a thing, I wouldn't have been able to see the thing because the windscreen was just completely smeared. So everything was just haze in front of me. And I also said this to you before I came on. If I'd been doing, if I find myself in that situation in a club race with a mate or a family race, I wouldn't have gone out. I'd have just said, sorry, guys. I mean, this is just, given how long it's been, given this particular situation, um, we are so far off the scale of the risk to reward rate ratio. Yeah. It's just not worth doing. But you can't do that. You cannot do that when Bentley were there because they wanted to, A, they wanted you know the car to be seen back in its natural environment. Um, B, they want to do it so that to encourage other customers, quite rightly, to race their cars. Um and, you know, a huge effort had been put together. The team had been put together. Um, there was an awful lot riding on this. And you can't just go, oh, sorry, guys, don't fancy it. Mm. Yeah, there, is there, there's a responsibility, isn't there, when so many people have put in so much work? Well, can you imagine? Yeah. And they'd have been, they'd have, they, they, they would have gone absolutely fine, Andrew. They would have put James back in the car and it mm. would have continued. But, well, A, I wouldn't have had a story to tell. Um, which, um, but I just couldn't do that. To, I could not do that to them um so off i went and it was yeah i mean i'll never i i I will never ever forget it 
I can remember going down the Mall Sand Strait, and it's you know it's so picture this: you're in a car. Um, okay, it's a new car, but it behaves like a 1920s car, so it's sort of shaking and wobbling about a bit. Um, it's pretty quick, you know. It's it's doing about 115 miles an hour into the first chicane. Mm-hmm. Yeah, that's plenty. You can't see. Yeah. What you are aware of, because there's a sort of translucent glimmer somewhere ahead of you, is that there's something out there. You don't know what it is, you don't know where it is, and you don't know how fast you're gaining on it, but it's there. You know that. What do you do? Do you lift? Do you park? Do you burst into tears? Do you hope? Mm. Or do you just back yourself that when whatever it is, wherever it is, and however it is behaving becomes apparent, you'll be able to sort it out. Um, and I, I, you know, I, I was I was lucky um, that when this stuff happened, and it happened quite a lot in that um, in that stint, that um, yeah, nothing bad happens. And mm. you know, I, I was helped so much by the car, which was so reassuring there was that i mean honestly you could do ridiculous things with that and it would forgive you you could see something and just you know when you're in the middle of a quick corner and just stamp on the brakes and and you think that it would just turn over crash fall off it didn't it would just go really Mm. yeah all right we'll slow down then Mm. um and 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 that's what's and, and and the more i confident i grew in the car the more not relaxed but the less terrified i became and at the end of it um, in a really kind of masochistic, perverse way, I was quite enjoying myself, um, <laughs> I, I, and I was—I literally got another lap in because I think the flags. I thought on my last lap, well, what I thought was my last lap. I thought we were out of time, but I think they must have waved the flag just as I got. So I got another lap, and to my utter astonishment, I find myself glad that I had another mm. lap of this insanity. Um, and yeah, so I think yeah. So James brought it in in twenty sixth place because of that all the cars which went then went and overtook us again i don't know where i was when we rejoined but probably 40 something and i got it back up to 28th um but the grid for the next race is not done on where you finish it but it's done on your fastest lap uh and my fastest lap was good enough for 22nd on the grid um so yeah in the dark quite pleased with that um and so yeah um i'm not gonna bang on about this relentlessly so that's where we were with the race on sunday morning um which was uh it was a daylight and i had a clear screen and i could see mm. and and that Imagine was that. the most magical wonderful time i can remember having in a race are, are you are you are you going to write about this oh you betcha <laughs> so we we need to tease people without giving away the whole story um but it does it does sound like did you have more fun in the in the daylight or was it i just had different yes i mean because i wasn't frightened i i, yeah. I never wanted that to stop you know mm. if, if you'd said Apart from the fact that I wasn't, wouldn't have been physically strong enough to manhandle that thing for that period of time. But if you said, okay, it's daylight and it's dry and this is a 24-hour race, go. Mm. Um, and, I'd had, and I had those guys as my teammates, I'd have bitten your arm off. It was, yeah. there, was, I, there was no reason in the world to want to come in. Um, I was, if you'd said to the 10-year-old me, and this is absolutely true, that one day you will race a Bentley for Bentley at Le Mans, I would have been no less surprised than if you said you'll walk, walk on the moon. <laughs> yeah, I can totally imagine that, actually. Yeah, young Andrew hearing that. Yeah, yeah. Um, but that's what I did this weekend. So, yeah, um, as weekends go, not a bad one. Fantastic. 
Well, um, I mean, we haven't spoken about the car in great detail, you know, the sort of technical, mechanical specification of the car. Um, but I, I don't want to steal the thunder from the story that you are going to write for the Intercooler app and website at some point. Um, so we should keep some details um, in our back pocket. But yeah, it, it does sound like a, an unforgettable weekend. Um, and it's, you know, just hearing you talk about that first race in the night when everything was stacked against you. It's, I haven't done exactly that before, but I found myself in motorsport scenarios where you just think, I can't do this. I can't do this. I'm not up to this. But you have to. And then you do. And, and, and you would have had those moments. And you talk to, I mean, maybe not Formula One drivers, but you talk to almost any other driver. And they will tell you that there have been moments where you, if you said to them, you can be literally anywhere else in the world other than right here, right now, that have yeah. taken your arm off. Oh, yeah. Oh, God, yeah. Anything to not have to do this thing. Yeah. Yeah. For me, it's, it's qualifying in the wet. You know, when you, when you get going and you realise you cannot see a thing for the spray, um, the wall of water, you're just driving into it. But then, visor down, you know the clock's running, you get on with it. And that's where you find that you're able to take another step up to a level that you never imagined you could do um, and actually drive quickly and maybe qualify well. It's, it's an amazing, amazing thing. What, what I find amazing about it, because I've spent so long trying to work out why that is, why the anticipation is so much worse than actually doing it, mm. even if doing it is absolutely as bad as you always imagined it was going to be. And I think it's the brain. I think the brain just goes, well, you're out here, you're doing it, and we've got more important things to be devoting mm. our time to than being frightened. Mm. You know, we're doing it. So being frightened doesn't help. You might as well just park that emotion and I think your brain, almost as a sort of part of the survival mechanism, just turns that off and mm. it realizes that you're going to do it. And so it just, you know, you, you, would have, you would have had this experience as well where you've been, for some reason, you're really, really physically uncomfortable. I mean, maybe you've got a cold or you I don't know, um, you've got an ingrowing tail or whatever, and something's really, really bothering you and you're in pain or you're unwell. You get in a racing car. And you go off and for whatever period of time you're doing it, whatever those problems are, simply don't exist. Your mm. brain switches them off, literally. And I yeah. think that's what it does. I think it does, that, that, that's what it does with the fear because it's not relevant anymore. So it's not helpful. So it gets maybe, rid of it. Maybe it's the same atavistic part of your mind that allowed us century, millennia ago to scramble up a tree away from yes. something that's hunting you down um, rather than just trip over and get eaten by a lion i I think i think it is i think it is part of that um so yeah i mean everybody everybody who has raced a car probably most people who've even done a track day particularly if it's wet Mm. will know the feeling and will be will have surprised themselves by how the feeling goes away once you're actually out there doing it i suppose it's also because the the unconscious mind is so much more capable than we ever imagine it to be and if you can get out of your own way, stop thinking about it, and let your unconscious mind do the work, you'll actually be fine. And you'll do, do stuff that you could never, ever do when you try to do it consciously. That, you know, whenever you have driver training or do a session on a simulator, that's what they're trying to do. They're trying to get your unconscious mind to do the work because the conscious mind cannot process all of that information quickly enough to allow you to drive the car competitively. 
So you have to stop thinking. It's yeah, it's an extraordinary thing. Um, well, I'm looking forward to reading the piece that you write. And so, just also just talking of driving simulations. Can I just give a quick shout out to um, Darren Turner? Um, oh, did you have a go on his? I did go and I did think of myself. Well, I haven't been around Lamar for what is it? Literally a dozen years. Um, and um, I did think I really ought to um, just have a bit of a go before. I get back out there again. And um, yeah, and so I went up to uh, Base Performance Simulators, which is Darren Turner's um, sort of office. It's in the countryside outside Banbury. And I had a choice. They do have an old vintage car. And he said to me, well, yeah, you can go in that, but um, you've only got an hour and you're not going to get very many laps in. I mean, our car was doing about. We 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 actually did a bit better, but we 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 modelled everything we did on the on the assumption of a seven minute lap, which is basically twice the time of a modern um, Le Mans prototype. Um, and so, actually, I did the whole thing in a LMP3 car, going twice as fast. But because just because I mean, I wasn't interested in handling or no. tweaking the setup of the car. I just wanted to remember which way the bloody track went. Mm. Um, and so, um, on Darren's advice, I got I, I did it in an LMP3 car. Um, and it was just so unbelievably useful, um, so much more useful than if you've got a sort of PlayStation at home with it on, yeah, um, yeah. because, you know, you're in the whole thing is around you. You've got side vision, you've got rear vision, you've got and the whole track is laid out of you in one to one scale in terms of what you see. Um, and I could have done a lap a little more. I think a lot of people can in their heads. But that's not the same as knowing exactly which bits of track that you can use. The little mm. bits where you're not technically on the road anymore, but you're also not technically outside track limits. And um, and it was just so, um, it was such a huge help because when I went back out there again, I mean, thank goodness. I mean, if I'd not done that in the situation I found myself in at two o'clock in the morning in those circumstances, I can't imagine how much more frightened I would have been. So yeah, huge shout out to Darren and Base Performance Simulators for... Um, just getting me back up to speed with at least which way the track went and which mm. bits of it I could use. Brilliant. Well, I'm looking forward to reading your story. And um, you had and you had brilliant photographer Jason Fong out there, so there'll be some fantastic images um, coming to the TI app and website very soon. All right, so an unforgettable weekend for you. Um, but let's think about Bentley and Bentley in racing in particular um, and some of the people involved. So... How important was motorsport to Bentley in those those very early years? It seems like it was fundamental. It was more important to them than it should have been. Um, you could never find out because you'll never know what would happen if they'd done less racing. But you know, this was a company which never made a profit. This was a company which spent an enormous amount of money on motor racing. Uh, and, and always the reason for it, or maybe it was the excuse, was the win on Sunday, sell on Monday um, thing. And there's no question at all that the brand put itself on the map that way. Um, yeah, there'll be you, know, you could argue, I think, quite cogently that there were some other British brands doing some stuff. I mean, Henry Seagrave won the French Grand Prix in a Sunbeam in 1923. Um, but really... There was very, very little. You could argue that as a place where motor racing, what would you, you could say, let me rephrase that. You could say that Bentley put Britain on the motor racing map 
And given mm. that, you know, mm. at the very, very top level in motor racing now, Britain is the more F1 teams based in Britain than all the others put together anywhere mm. else. Um, and Bentley was basically where it started. So it was incredibly important to the history of motorsport. It was incredibly important to the history of Bentley. Um, but it did, in terms of the resources that it sapped, the year after Bentley won the more for the fifth time, so in 1931, and they won it for the fifth time in 1930, um, the, country, the, com- the company went bankrupt, mm. and that was it. So, yeah, um, I've often wondered, I mean, WA always said it was purely commercial and it was a way of publicising the cars. Um, well, maybe, or maybe it was just an enormous amount of fun. You know, originally, um, WA did not intend for his cars. I mean, there were no 24-hour races. It didn't, you know, as a concept in 1919 when he formed Bentley Motors, Le Mans didn't exist. Mm. When he heard that there was going to be a race and that one of his customers, a bloke called John Duff, who was an extraordinary character, he was Canadian, um, was going to be the only entrant outside of France and Belgium that was going to go and do this insane 24-hour race in northwest France. You know, WSN thing, I think the whole thing's crazy. Cars aren't designed to uh, cope with that kind of strain for that period of time. Nobody will finish. He changed his tune pretty quickly, didn't he? Pretty quickly. Yeah. The following year, he was back um, with the same drivers um, in a work-supported car. They won it, um, didn't win in 25 or 26, and then won 27, 8, 9, 30, went bust in 31. QED, read into that what you will. Yeah. So it was... Um... Yeah, what what other motorsport was important to Bentley? Brooklands was a big part of the the tale, wasn't it? Um, and this is this is these are the formative days of motor racing, where Brooklands probably even then was the only purpose built track. Um, so it's not like motorsport was anything like as evolved as it is now, and there were loads of circuits and championships you could go and compete in. Um, but <clears throat> Le Mans, Brooklands, and perhaps some others, Bentley was right there, um, winning them. Yeah, I mean, yeah, Brooklyn's was a, it was basically it was well, it was you know it's the it was the first purpose built racing facility race track in the world. Um, you know, it beat Indianapolis by I, do, I can't remember whether it was weeks, months, or years, but it wasn't by much. Um, and and really, it wasn't a place where with racing these days we get loads of you know massive car manufacturers piling, and it's just where people who had cars would yeah. go and race them, and they just. Yeah. You know, it's something to do with the weekend. They toddle down in their Rileys or their MGs or whatever, um, and they'd put their their flat caps on backwards, and <laughs> off they'd go, and they'd have a tootle round and have a great time, and then they go to their members' bar and you know have a few beers, and then they wobble home again. Um, and that's what Brooklyn's was right. I mean, the motto is so appalling. Um, the rock bottom of it was the right crowd and no crowding, so it gives you an idea mm. of the sort yeah. of yeah. very sort of elite moneyed certain sort of person who was welcome at Brooklyn's mm. um but I guess that's just the way that it was at a place like that at a time like that um and if you didn't want to race there really the only other thing you could go and do is to go and do the road races um you know the Targa Florio was still around you know the TT I mean Bentley came second third and fourth in the TT in uh on the Isle of Man in 1922 it was their first race success one lunatic entered the the first bentley to race internationally was a bloke called wd hawks entered a car for the indy 500 in 1922 yeah. Yeah. qualified last came last so bentley don't, take, <laughs> tend, don't tend to make an awful lot of that yeah. um 
But yeah, that's what that, that that's what you went to go and do. Um, and you know, Brooklyn was absolutely caught at that. And and when Brooklyn started having these things called double twelve races, um, which are twenty four hour races, but because of noise restrictions, they couldn't run them for twenty four hours. So they do them for a twelve hour period. Park the cars in Park Fermi where you can't touch them. Come back in the morning and then do it, and then go again for another twelve hours. Um, yeah, Bentley used to go do those as a works team um, and win them, and it was rightly or wrongly incredibly important to them. Okay, so but why didn't Bentley pursue the Grand Prix racing avenue like the particularly the Italian Blue Bloods were doing at that time? Well, because. The cars were never designed, really, to race. Mm. You know, Ettore Bugatti famously called them the fastest lorries in the world. Um, And it was just not um, the cars that Bentley were making. You know, Bentley, you know, don't forget, um, his motto was to build a good car, a fast car, the best in its class. It wasn't to build the lightest or the most exciting or or a racing car. Um, He wanted to build... Comfort and refinement were just as important to him mm. as pure speed. He didn't want to build something, some fragile little um, race car, which would go incredibly fast and then break. He had no interest in it. He wanted a car of the utmost engineering integrity in all possible regards. Mm. He wanted a car that was the fastest and the most comfortable, um, the highest possible quality. And that's fine. And it's actually extremely uh, adaptable for long distance racing but it's hopeless if you want to go and you know win a grand prix if you want to go and win a grand prix you got an alfa or a bugatti um absolutely not a bentley they were too big they were too cumbersome they just weren't suited to it any more than those little grand prix bugattis mm. um would have been suited to lasting 24 hours around the mall it's so fortuitous isn't it that bentley wo bentley founded his company in 1919 and a couple of years later someone has this big idea for a race in the north of france that takes off just as Bentley's yeah. in its formative years. It's so fortuitous how that happened. Um, but yeah, the, and you're, you're absolutely right. To WO, showing speed but also durability over a, a long duration was really important. And so it's not like he might have chosen Grand Prix racing instead. It was just never going to happen. No, but if you think about what the brand's values are today and i think it's one of the things that i admire about the modern bentley motors is they are so you think about what bentley said you know a good car fast car the best in its class you think about um the qualities that that encapsulated and then you look at a modern flying spur or continental gt you know these cars are never going to be the fastest cars in their club in you know in, of, of all the most exciting cars of all um but they do absolutely subscribe to the vision of their founder from over a hundred years ago. They are cars of great integrity, extraordinary quality. They are good, if you know, not absolutely great to drive. Um, and they go on forever. And that's what it's all about. And I, and I, and I just really like, and I think that you know, there are many reasons for Bentley's current successes. And Bentley is an extremely successful company at the moment. Um, but I think probably chief among them is that the people who run the company today know what a Bentley is and they know what it should be. Mm. Mm. Sometimes, it, it, yeah, you look at Bentley as it is now and we know what kind of cars they produce. Fantastic cars, many of them. And you wonder exa- how exactly has motorsport rubbed off on this mark um, and left its influence. But actually it's quite clear because there is always something at least a bit sporting about a Bentley, some much more than others, of course. Um, but they are not pure luxury cars. They are luxury and sporting cars 
by and large. And that's what distinguishes Bentley from, say, Rolls-Royce. Um, because no Rolls-Royce has ever had any sporting pretension. Um, but Bentley is subtly but sort of importantly different to that. Um, and a lot of that comes from motor racing. So actually, it's, it's really important. This, this heritage in sport is really important to Bentley even now. Um, it gives it a key part of its character. So the question is, I guess, um, you know, Bentley won all those races back in the 20s and won in 1930. Um, it then didn't win a thing until 2003 when yeah. it won Le Mans again. Um, and you, okay, and, and it raced at the mall and, and, and indeed elsewhere in the championship in 2001 and 2002. Should Bentley be racing now? Mm. Um, why is Bentley not racing now? All, yeah, so many other manufacturers, um, saw the, um, yeah. the potential of the LMH and the LMDH regulations for coming up with a car that was, um, uh, you know, which could be competitive but also affordable. You didn't have to spend the bazillions that are required to do a hybrid LMP1 program anymore. Um, and I don't know the answer to that. I, I think, I, frankly, if honestly, I think they should be out there. Maybe they wished that they had, or maybe there is, you know, if you talk to Adrian Hallmark, who's the boss of the company, he will tell you, and Adrian is a straight guy, um, and he means it. He's not one of these guys who's just going to give you the PR guff that racing is in Bentley's blood. I mean, he was one. Of, he was the guy when he was marketing director of Bentley, you know, in the early part of this century, who was um, absolutely part of Bentley going back to Le Mans then. Um, so, you know, when he says it, you can believe it. But there, there are two things. You know, one of the great Bentley, um, what's the term? Don't know. But they, you know, they say that Bentley, a Bentley should never enter a race. It does not have a reasonable chance of winning. So they're never going to go and do a sports car program for GT honors, win a class category, as there's lots of others, you know, as Ford did, Aston Martin did. Um, and so, you know, they'll enter a car into a race which has a reasonable chance of winning it outright or not at all. Um, and I, I, I think they are just waiting for the set of rules to suit the agenda, because ultimately these things are businesses and there's no car manufacturer in the world whose primary motivation for racing cars is not to sell more road cars to you know to, to normal people. That's why they do it. Mm. Um, Mercedes and you know and Porsche and Audi and, and 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 everybody else who has have works racing teams. They're not doing it because they're they're mad about racing. They're doing it to sell cars. Um, and you know, if I had a crystal ball, I knew what Bentley was planning in the future. We know I think they're going to have an EV by twenty twenty five. Then we'd have a good idea of what they were doing. Um, I would think that if the Le Mans authority said, right, we're going to have, we're going to make it possible for a hydrogen powered car mm. to win this race, or we're going to make it possible for an electric powered car to win this race. Um, or we're going to do it in a way that a car with sustainable fuels could win this race. Then I think ears would prick up. I don't know. Um, and they, uh, and then maybe they think, oh, well, that's the hook that we can hang it on. Um, I, I, I wish they were there. I, I hope that they, I mean, there was a lot of talk. In fact, the then boss, Wolfgang Durheimer, once told me that they were going to do a Daytona prototype for their centenary in 2019. Um, but Dieselgate then happened and, you know, Volkswagen had its rally program pulled. Audi had its Le Mans program pulled. And my understanding is that that particular project, um, which would have seen Bentley racing in America initially, uh, in IMSA, but would have made them in, put them in an extremely good position to then 
as has turned out, be able to race those cars um, in Europe and at Le Mans, um, is that the, that project ended up in the same bin as the other Volkswagen mm. Motorsport plans, which is a shame. shame. Yeah, real shame. I'd, I'd totally be up for Bugatti, uh, for Bentley, excuse me, going racing at Le Mans um, and anywhere else. It'd be fantastic to see. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hiring for your small business? If you're not looking for professionals on LinkedIn, you're looking in the wrong place. That's like looking for your car keys in a fish tank. LinkedIn helps you hire professionals you can't find anywhere else, even those who aren't actively searching for a new job but might be open to the perfect role. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't even visit other leading job sites. So start looking in the right place. With LinkedIn, you can hire professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Um, okay, we can't talk about Bentley and motorsport and the significance of racing to Bentley without talking about the Bentley boys. Um, just a little bit. And now this is my sense of who they were. They seemed to be very wealthy, typically from family money, Kaddish, adventurers, often with a military background, upper middle class or upper class, playboy lifestyle. Um, does that all seem about right? It's part of the picture. I mean, yeah. yes, it's, it's, it's the truth, but it's not the whole truth. Mm. Um, and, you know, and also you can't just stick them all in the same box. Um, you know, they came from, they came as far afield as from, from Canada to Australia. So John Duff, the bloke I mentioned earlier, he was a Canadian. Um, Bernard Rubin, who is, um, who won Le Mans for Bentley in 1928. Um, he was an Australian. Um, and I, I push back slightly against this notion that they were all just you know privileged wealthy mm. upper class twits running around having parties chasing girls and having a nice time and racing some cars on the side mm. i understand why that image has been created um you know it's it's kind of it kind of plays to the the mystique of the mark a little bit i guess and there were certainly considerable components of that which are true but it's not as i said it's not the whole story I, th- I think so much of why those people, th- th- let's not forget that um, they were all amateurs. Um, Bentley over only ever employed one professional racing driver who was a bloke called Frank Clement, um, who worked for Bentley, and he was their test driver all the way through. And he drove, I think, for Bentley in every single or more from 1923 um, up to 1930. Um, and he won it with John Duff in 1924. But all the others were customers. Um, in the case of Wolf Bernardo, he was the chairman of the company. But so many of them, as you said, had this military context. You know, let's not forget that you know the first Le Mans came five years after the end of the Great War, and and I think for so many of them, so much of their behaviour is explained simply by the fact that they didn't expect to be alive. Yes. Yes. Yeah. Um, and some of them shouldn't be. You know, Bernard Rubin, the Australian, he was so badly injured, he'd spent three years learning how to walk again. Mm. Um, John Duff had been 
um, terribly injured. Um, yeah, Tim Birkin was in the Royal Flying Corps. Um, a bloke called Glenn Kidston. Oh my God, Kidston. Yeah. He he yeah. was a ma- he was a submariner. He, okay, so he survived two ships that were tor- t- torpedoed, yeah. a submarine that sank, um, and a plane crash from which he was the only survivor. And he survived by literally beating his way out of the side of the fuselage with his fists. Oh. And according to this, he, he ran back into the, the burning wreckage twice in, a, in an attempt to save others. That's right. They weren't just rich idiots partying and driving cars for fun. They were enormously courageous people, weren't they? Who had seen, you know, people who dismissed them, forget what these guys had seen, forget what they had gone through, yeah. forget that a night stint in the rain at Le Mans was a, an absolute nothing. It's not, not even a blip on the screen compared to the song. Mm. And what they... You know, even those who who survived it uninjured, you know, just think of what they saw. Just think of the friends that they lost, um, the experiences. And, you know, you never hear um, of these people and they never talked about what they saw and what they suffered. But we all, you know, PTSD is a very familiar thing these days. And, you know, and we know that people who went through the sorts of experiences that those people went through, even if they didn't experience themselves, what they witnessed, um, creates all sorts of profound lifelong problems. Um, but uh, just because they never talked about them and they just got on with it back then, um, it doesn't become part of the story. Um, but that doesn't mean it didn't happen, it didn't exist, and therefore we can ignore it. Um, and I have, for the vast majority of these people who, you know, I, you know, I've banged on about it too much in this podcast, but, you know, I raced a, a Bentley, just like the ones they raced at Lamore at night for a very, very short period of time on a track which is a bazillion times safer now than it was then, um, wearing all the proper safety gear, and I was utterly terrified. Um, and they do it twice around the clock, for a day and a night and a day. Um, and so, so, so you can't for a moment say, oh, yes, I know what that feels like now, because you don't. You haven't got a bloody clue. But you get a, you, you get a little glimpse. You just get a little bit closer to the sort of sensations and the sights and everything else. And to think that what terrified me witless was to them a fun weekend away gives <laughs> you some, some measure of the sort of person that we're talking about now. Um, and that is why um, I, you know, which is why as a kid I became completely, you know, these guys were my heroes. And it's strange, isn't it? Because, you know, not even I'm an old, old enough to, um, for the, for any of them to have been contemporaries of mine, um, but I, you know, as a child, I became obsessed with these people from what was even then a long, long time ago because they spoke to me of a courage and an approach and an attitude which I found not just utterly thrilling in a kind of schoolboy way, but but admirable in a way that even today I can't really express very well. I just thought they were brilliant. Yeah, a really remarkable band of people, actually. Um, and it's it's good to discuss them in their fair and true context because they weren't just playboys. It's really, it's a really good point worth making. Um, okay, so Bentley and motorsport. That's um, we'll leave that one there. Uh, we have got a listener question coming up, but um, if you want to read Andrew's story about racing a Bentley at the Le Mans Classic, that will be. I don't know when you're going to write it, but um, I don't know in the next week or two. I, I would guess. 
I'm sure it's going to be quite a story. So um, remember to head to the-intercooler.com um, over the next uh, week or so to check that out. Um, okay, so we'll end this episode with a listener question, which comes in from David Cotter. Now, this is in no way relevant to the weekend you've just had. Um, uh, for those of us who haven't had the good fortune to have driven on racing slicks, can you give us an idea of the, the, the advantage they bring over road tyres? What is the slowest road car that, if on slicks, could beat a given supercar on road tyres around a circuit of your choice? So, what's it like to drive on slicks? You weren't this weekend, obviously, but you have done plenty of times in the past. Um, it's an interesting question because, yeah, if you if you haven't had the good fortune to do it before, it's a total mystery, isn't it? Yeah. Um, I was like, Before I did it, I was always very scared of slicks. They, said they, they sounded frightfully senior to me. Um, yeah. And, in fact, the first time I ever drove a car on slicks which was a Renault Clio Cup car, um, I literally spun it at the first corner mm. because uh, I had no appreciation of just how little grip they they give when the, when they're cold. Mm. The thing about slicks is that, I mean, a road car tyre is one of the most compromised things that there has ever been because it obviously has to give you grip, but it's got to give you grip when it's wet and when it's dry. Um not only that, um, it has to be hard enough so that um, it doesn't wear out. It's got to last, you know, hopefully, you know, many thousands of miles. Um, it's, it's got to have a sidewall, which will, you know, not distort too much when you're cornering, but still at the same time not compromise your ride comfort. Um, it's, there, there are so many conflicts that have to be resolved. And so ultimately what you get is... A car, which a tire, which isn't very good at anything, mm. but at everything, it's as good as it can be. Mm. Slicks don't have to worry about any of that. Slicks don't have to worry about, um, <clears throat> you know, other than in a very limited way, how long they last. Um, they certainly don't have to worry about whether it's, you know, what what, what the weather's going to be like. So it's 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 how good a tire could be if a tire only had one job, mm. which is to grip. And, and you know, Dan, I mean, they are just, I mean, the first time you do it, you just start laughing because mm. once you get them in the window, once you get them working, you, you simply can't believe. No, you can't believe how much grip there is, how hard you can lean on them. It's amazing. It is amazing. I first drove on them um, at the inaugural Race of Remembrance up at Anglesey in 2014 in an MX-5. Um, it had been wet most of the weekend, so we were on rain tyres, really. Um, and then it dried out and they put some slicks on and they said to me, be careful for a couple of laps, let them come in. And so you do. And yeah, you're right. When they're cold, they're awful. And you think, oh my God, I can't do this. And then you just give it a few laps, build up to it. They do come in and then you've just got more grip than you've ever felt before. Um, and it's fantastic. Just what I found was that I, I had all this extra grip, but I had to consciously use it so i had to brake later and harder i had to consciously carry more speed into the apex i had to consciously get on the power earlier really drive to this extra grip that i had and then the lap times would just tumble um so it was fantastic it's great fun it's not very fun when you're on a lovely warm sticky tacky slick and then it starts raining um because <laughs> if, if it's just a bit damp as long as it, the, the, the problem is is it's not just the water which the tires can't shift it's the water uh, the water cools the tire yeah um and the moment the tire falls out of its operating window then uh that's a really really bad place to be uh i mean the, the, the difficulty with slicks is 
you've got to find the balance when you're warming them up. Um, because if you just drive around slowly, because that's what the grip level is, they'll never warm up and you'll never get it. But obviously, if you push them too hard, um, you'll bin it. So it's, it's there's always a a sort of a, a slightly nervy couple of laps when, you know, you are sliding about a bit um, and then they kind of come in and you think, oh, that's good, but you're not sure whether they're fully in or whether they're just on the way. And then suddenly that moment when you know you've got all the grip in the world um, is 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 just amazing. Also, um, and you will have done this, the difference between a road car tyre and a purpose-built racing wet is at least as big as the difference mm-hmm. between a road car tire and a slick a purpose-built racing wet is it to me it's 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 black magic it's witchcraft the amount of grip those things give are just ridiculous you drive that you drive around a wet track as if it's as, as if it were a, a road car tire in the dry mm-hmm. um so yeah and, and it all just goes back to normal road car tires being total compromises in every area of their design as as, as they have to be they have to be yeah so that going back to that question that point about um how fast uh, would uh, a certain car be against on slicks be against a, a supercar on road tires? So I, it's a difficult one to quantify. But I remember at Evo years ago, we did do it. Um, we had a, a handling circuit, um, a Renault Clio Cup car on slicks. Uh, so a racing car, not a road car, um, but it's a road-based car on slick tires and an Audi R8 V10 on road tires. Um, and actually, I can't remember which one was fastest, but they were very, very close. And this is a little Renault Clio Cup car with a couple hundred horsepower. And because of the slicks, the racing car was at least as quick, which does demonstrate, doesn't it, what a slick tyre can do for you. They are fantastic things. I can also remember um, when I first drove the Senna, uh, the McLaren Senna, um, we were only allowed to drive it on the track. And I can remember coming off and thinking, well, you know, the car's unbelievably fast and it's got huge amounts of downforce. But in the slower corners, when um, there wasn't much downforce about, the car was so limited yeah. by the, I think it must have been on a Cup 2R or something, not a Cup 2R, a Trofeo, I was on Pirelli's. And you could just feel these road car tyres, even though they were the most sporting road car tyres that Pirelli made at the time, yeah. you could just feel the whole car. I likened it to a, you know, a, a cork in a bottle. All that potential was there, but it couldn't get out because it was being so limited by um, the abilities of the tyre. I then, not that much longer, um, drove a Senna GTR on slicks and then just suddenly, oh, right, okay, fine. Mm, now we understand. Wow. It felt twice as fast. It was It's just a completely and utterly different world. Uh, and of course you know there are slicks and slicks there are slicks which are designed to last a few hours there are slicks which are designed to last a few minutes you get different compounds and different constructions but generally speaking the difference between a road car tire and a slick is a tire which is which has to do an awful lot of jobs and is therefore completely compromised in the car and, and, and a tire which is designed to do one job and the differences are absolutely as big as you'd expect in those circumstances yeah yeah, that's it. So, David, thank you for your question. That was a really, really good one. Um, so get your questions across. That's, you know, we love questions like that. It's just a fun way to end the, end the podcast. So keep them coming. Uh, and we'll do it again next week. Bye. Bye. 
Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings, from premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts. Start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market.